Hey, everybody. Quick reminder to not wait until the last second to book your liturgist gathering tickets. Last time, there were a bunch of people that couldn't get in because it sold out before they could buy. So those dates, again, are September 15th and 16th in Los Angeles, October 6th and 7th in Boston, and October 27th and 28th in Seattle. It's going to be such a good time. Make sure to get your tickets quickly. Also, Gunger, my band, is going to be playing some full band shows I'm really excited about because we haven't done that in a while. Uh, I'd love to invite you out to those. We're going to be in Dallas, Texas, July 12th. We're going to be in New York City, uh, July 28th, and we're going to be in Nashville, August 5th. We're also doing a number of acoustic stops on the tour where Lisa and I do like a stripped down acoustic show, take questions, and have a lovely time with the always fascinating people that are you. For the acoustic shows, we will be in San Antonio, July 16th, New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, July 30th, Philadelphia, August 2nd, Cary, North Carolina, August 3rd, Denver, August 7th, Colorado Springs, August 9th, Omaha, Nebraska, August 11th, Indiana, August 16th, Ohio, August 17th. And there are actually several more of those dates that will be posted on the website over the next week or two as well. If you'd like to see a slightly less musical in a certain way, but certainly every bit as nerdy event with Science Mike. <laughs> He's actually going to be doing some dates in the UK. He's going to be in London, Birmingham, and Edinburgh on October 11th, 13th, and 17th. He's going to be in Dublin on October 21st. And that's a lot of stuff, but please do come out and see us. You won't regret it, or you will, or you will realize that regret is a mostly useless construct and emotion, and just let that go and enjoy being present in another moment. Either way, consider yourself invited. All right, on to the show. We're here with an amazing filmmaker whose genre of film would be like existential space films. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. Um, yeah. yourself, guy. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah, this is small technicality. Hello, my name is Guy Reed. My full name is actually Guy Charles Barrington Reed, but I never tell Ooh, anyone that's that. That's a fancy name. It is a fancy name. And my friends call me GCB. But um, Barrington is also, weirdly enough, a big Jamaican name. So I've got like props in the Jamaican community as well, but I rarely go by it. So Guy is fine. All right, there yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah. No. Thanks. It sounds good. It does Americans sound good. love it. You know, yeah. I sound like I should put Lord in front of it. <laughs> in fact, a friend of mine, strangely enough, he actually bought me some land in Scotland, my main business partner, Christoph. Uh, for a birthday present, it did actually give me the ability to use Lord. And I just got my driving license in America. <laughs> Apparently, I can actually use it. So I'll be Lord Guy Charles Barrington Reed. And oh I thought I'll put the third gosh. on the end. It's pretty good. Yeah. And it's probably just like an Aldi car park up in Glasgow. Like it's like it's meant to be like some land that I can camp on. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's no you're land still, up there. But... You're still the Lord of the land. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Lord of Fife. Science Mike and I sat down with Lord Guy Charles Barrington Reed and our friend Jacob Marshall while we were in Washington, D.C. recently, lobbying with some leaders who have influence with Christian millennials, trying to 
encourage some GOP Congress members to pay more attention to climate change, to see how it's not just a partisan issue, but an issue for all human beings and all life. This conversation that you're about to hear about planet Earth is one of my personal favorites that we've ever had on the show. We think you're going to enjoy it as well. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast. Sorry, I am a filmmaker. That's true. <laughs> I make films about astronauts and ecology and uh, the big questions. So existential. It's a podcast, so we can't show you the film, but we'll put a link in the show notes on this episode to Guy's Film Overview, which is just a, a pretty solid head trip and is, is premised on this really incredible phenomenon called the Overview Effect. Tell us what you know about the overview effect. Well, I don't know much about it because I haven't been to space. Not yet. Although, actually, I probably am not interested in going. It looks rather dangerous. And there's a 1 in 60 chance now I of go dying. right now. No prep. <laughs> yeah. Right now. Right. You've got to talk to the astronauts, though, and find out what actually happens. Because it sounds pretty rubbish, actually. The really? first part of it and the last part of it. The bit in the middle is when they have this supposed phenomena called the Ovi effect. So I came across it, um, that term, when I was 15 years old. And I grew up in a city called Bristol in the UK. And my friends and I used to, um, used to skateboard, hang out, do what most 15-year-olds do. But my friend Steve and I were really interested in finding out the you know, about the big questions in life. We used to get high quite a lot. I don't know if I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say that. You absolutely okay. are allowed yeah. to say so that. So yeah. we used to get... Stones that's a, a thing lot. that people do that's cool yeah i mean i think it's quite healthy at 15 gets you you know opens the mind so we we used to um we used to get high a lot and talk about big things and we kept, we used to go to secondhand bookshops and go through the dusty shelves and try to find stuff that would blow our mind and steve came back one day with a book which was called the awakening earth and it was published in 1982 by a british kind of rogue physicist called peter russell and in it the invitation at the beginning was this beautiful description of the Earth from space from an astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, who was on Apollo 14. So to put that in context, he's the guy that after Apollo 13, they were like, who, who, who wants to go? And dear old Edgar went, me. <laughs> so he's that kind of nutter because everyone knows what happened on Apollo 13. <laughs> so he, he had this adventurous spirit, went to space, and then as he was coming back, he was the lunar module pilot. So he landed on the moon right? They went back up and they went back to earth. And he had a lot of time looking out the window. And as he looked out the window, he saw the heavens, the, the sun and the moon on rotation. And he had a background in cosmology, looked down at his hands and realized that all the molecules in his body and his crewmates and the craft, all part of this same evolutionary continuum, this cosmological continuum. And he had this kind of incredible moment, this kind of ecstatic moment where he felt profoundly interconnected with everything so we're high 15 years old reading this going dude why has no one told us this we've been at school for ages now and no one's told us about how cool this is you know and so it was this amazing idea of joining all these disciplines together so at the time i didn't know it was called the ovi effect and we read about this and it was kind of amazing and we we said right everyone's got to read this book so we got this book went to the skate park, gave it to our friends, said, dude, this book will get you high. You don't even need anything else. Just read this book. And uh, no one read the book. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> no. That is a 
Disappointment. Humanity. Not a soul. So we said, okay, let's make a film. So we mapped out the basis of a film. We finally made that film. But when we were doing the research into the film, we came across this term, the overview effect, which was coined by a Harvard professor called Frank White in 1987. And um, he wrote this book, uh, came up with a term, interviewed a bunch of astronauts from all over the world, and they kind of describe this profound experience of seeing the Earth from space. And there's a spectrum. Edgar on Apollo 14, who I mentioned earlier, his was like far out there. And then there's guys that go up and they're like, hey, that's nice. <laughs> and then there's this wonderful spectrum in, in between. And really, I think what it is, is it's, it's a peak experience of some sort that is grounded in this physical experience of being weightless, of nearly dying on the way up, and then looking back and having this profound recognition of home. And they talk about this idea of, you know, seeing home first as New York or Texas, and then as America, and then as North America, and then suddenly it's just planet. I have this quote as my cover photo on my, my personal Facebook profile. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck, grab him a quarter of a million miles out, and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Edgar D. Mitchell. Did, did you see what happened the other day with the no. tweet? So about a week ago, someone wrote a tweet saying, look at that, you son of a bitch, <laughs> at the current president. 45. 45. He tweeted it. Then he printed the tweet out, cut it out, and attached the tweet to a balloon and sent it into space <laughs> and recorded it. So that quote's been going about. You can Google it. It's pretty cool. We That's saw amazing. it and we were like, I like it. <laughs> it's appropriate. So, yeah, that's great. When you've talked to astronauts about their experience, what do they describe to you as, as what it's like to view the Earth from that vantage point? Well, it varies. So I had the pleasure of interviewing Jim Lovell. It's Tom Hanks plays him in Apollo 13. But he was on a previous mission, on a previous Apollo mission, Apollo 8, which is my favorite space mission out of all of them. Uh, because Apollo 8 is this kind of remarkable mission that left, it was the first mission where we left the Earth's gravity and circled the moon and came back. And on the fourth orbit of the moon, these three pretty wonderful astronauts put their Hasselblad camera out the window. But they didn't put it out the window, they put it up to the window. <laughs> <laughs> and they took a picture, and that picture is subsequently known as Earthrise. And it was Jim Lovell, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders. And there was kind of a dispute on who took the photo. I think it's now Bill, like, pressed the button, but Jim lined it up. You know, there's a, there's a bit of back and forth between them. But I spoke to, I interviewed um, Jim Lovell, and he said this remarkable thing. He said that he's brought up with this idea of paradise that he'd been told about in a religious context. And he said that, when he was coming back from, from the moon and looking back at the planet, when he first got that glimpse of the whole earth, he felt like this is the paradise our species has always been searching for. And I think 
that was just such a remarkable thing for him to say. We're making another film called Orbital. And I'm going to end the film with that, I think. Because <laughs> I think it's just like perfect on the nose. And it's this idea that, you know, we went to the moon, but actually what we found is the Earth. And the remarkable thing about most of the discussion around space and spaceflight, it's about what you do in space. How do you go to the loo in space? What do you eat in space? What experiments do you do in space? Is it fun floating? And of course, most of the astronauts are preoccupied with looking out the window. And so the descriptions of the Earth are really remarkable. You know, the azure blue waters, the deep tans of the Sahara, just this profound experience of beauty. And that's the thing that really um, underlies the experience from the astronauts I've encountered. This profound awe in the face of majesty. The interesting thing is they also look the other way. Um, and when you look the other way and you switch the lights off of your visor and you let you know your eyes adjust, this infinity of worlds comes out of this velvet darkness. And you you look one way and there's a fragile oasis. It's blue pearl. You look the other way, there's an infinity of worlds. And it's pretty amazing. I think you start out with this idea of what it's gonna be like. And then when you do finally look at the Earth for the first time, you're overwhelmed by how much more beautiful it really is when you see it for real. It's just like it's this dynamic, alive place that you see glowing all the time. It was truly incredible to be up there um, doing what I always wanted to do my whole life and then to kind of glance back at our planet and uh, see that view was just tremendous. describe what I've seen you know looking down at the earth and you see that that line that separates day into night slowly moving across the planet thunderstorms on the horizon casting these long shadows as the sun sets and then watching the earth come alive and you see the lights from the cities and the towns the events you see from space like flying over thunderstorms looking at them from the top were spectacular like a fireworks show going on and you're looking at it from the very top you know, shooting stars going below us or, or you know, dancing curtains of auroras. It's just um, very hard to describe all the, you know, the colors, the beauty, the, the motion. Friend of ours, he has this great show called Bella Gaia, Kenji Williams. He, uh, he had an encounter with an astronaut. The astronaut had said this thing to him which led him to put on this amazing show inspired by this and he said that his favorite planet before going into space was saturn he loved saturn you know and when he went to space his favorite planet changed to this planet <laughs> so i think there's this thing about this reality that's always there being unveiled yeah there's so much metaphor to take from it too it's just like right i mean first of all the experience of seeing from a different perspective, seeing the connectedness of everything. So many people have that experience, whether it be through a mystical experience, a drug experience, or whatever. And it's it's interesting to talk. I remember like talking about such things before I had 
like I had seen glimpses. I think you can see little glimpses of how we're connected to each other and to everything and feel it and you hear it. And it sounds like a nice, beautiful idea. I've had moments where you see it as clear as you can see anything else. And it's world shattering. It's you can't be the same after that. It's like Paul on the road to Damascus. Mike's beach story. When you see what you thought was ordinary, what you thought was just the ground that you're standing on. And it's glowing, alive, connected, divine, whatever words you want to use, mystery, beauty. When I hear these stories of these astronauts, there's part of me that's like, oh, I want to, I want to see that from that perspective as well. And I think how many of us have heard Mike's beach story and be like, I want to go to the beach and have a beach experience. And <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? These peak experiences that are like change everything. It's fascinating to think of that as something you can actually physically changing your location in space and time can give you that same awareness that other people have experienced through different mediums. One thing I would, I would add to that is as we've gotten to, to have these conversations with different astronauts, the consistent takeaway for them is that we are quite literally in this together. And I think when having a conversation about how a perspective shift like this leads to, you know, an increased desire to, to be conscious about our consumption or to think about our planet and ecological systems, when you can see it as a single kind of living, breathing system of life, supporting life that we've we've come out of this system of life and that we're we're dependent on it and dependent on each other you know they consistently describe their posture coming back into the world as one of a need like a like an existential need for radical collaboration and ron in particular tells these amazing stories about his background as being a fighter pilot he was an f-16 fighter and uh, he'd been trained to shoot down the Russians, and all of a sudden he finds himself collaborating with the Russians on the International Space Station. And they go from you know this context of, wow, you were my enemy at one point in time, to if we don't work together right now, we'll never survive. And that flip in perspective long outlives their experience in space, and they come back, and that's been you know Ron's biggest message is that you know, we are, as a species, as human beings, we are all in this together. And if we don't find ways to work with people who don't look like us, who maybe don't think like us, but if we can't find that shared humanity at the base of our existence and find a way to look them in the eye and work together on our common problems, we're never going to get out of it. and I'm six years old. Just like you, I'm a human being who lives on planet Earth. I'm a really lucky kid because I have things like clean water to drink and healthy food in my refrigerator. But if you adults don't start taking better care of the Earth, that might not always be the case. Here are some numbers for you. 
One million humans net are added to the earth every four and a half days to feed all of those people. We are going to have to produce more food in the next 50 years than we have in the past 10,000 years combined. We need 600 million acres every single year for the next 30 years to do this. And this is a big problem because we were actually losing twice that every single year. Some scientists say humanity only has 60 years of farming left. At current world soil degradation rates, one billion humans already walk a mile each day for fresh water. At this rate of humanity's carbon footprint on the biosphere, there will be four billion people who are short of fresh water in 10 years. So as a kid, who's going to live my life in the future that you adults are building for me now? Please, you have to learn how to work together and take care of this beautiful home of ours so that it can keep taking care of us. We've gotten to the place with our technology where and our, our weapons and with climate change and all that, that's happening, the power of humanity. Up to this point, we didn't really existentially need to see the other as connected to myself. And in fact, on some level, we needed the ego of separation to survive up to this point. At a, you know, in early human history, you needed to be like, no, I need my resources I'm going to kill that animal to feed, you know, there needed to be some of that me first, me only nature to just evolve and survive. But things have changed <laughs> where if we don't learn to see that climate is not just an issue for polar bears and ice caps, but, and not even just for the poor, but for every single one of us. And that the issues in Sudan or Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever are intrinsically connected. You can't, it's not just foreign aid because we need to be compassionate. We are connected to all those things in this very thin biosphere in fundamental ways, more fundamental ways than we can understand. So it's become existential and important to our survival as a species to be able to transcend this, these sort of small egocentric, tribal-centric, even nation-centric perspectives, or we're gonna, we've always used the biggest weapons we've had. We always have. Are we going to be able to not use nukes? Are we going to be able to not nuke all of ourselves to hell? To do so, we have to evolve our consciousness. And that's, I've heard of stories of the Earthrise picture and what that did, that what that photo did in society. Do, do you, can you speak to that? What, yeah, I mean, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, I think that image... Because the, the most famous one is the blue marble, which was taken actually on the last trip back from the moon. So the first one, Earthrise was taken on Apollo 8 going first trip. The blue marble was taken on Apollo 17. And overview, our film was actually, a, it was a, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the blue marble. But the interesting thing with Earthrise 
is that I think on that day, Christmas Eve, 1968, when that image was taken, we suddenly entered a new epoch mm. of humanity. Because before we had these two dimensional maps, it's like a kind of like a game of risk. You've got the nation states resources, mm -hmm. you've got to get them. And everyone's devised all these maps, you know, and all these strategies based on this kind of territory. Yep. I always started in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> we either, Sorry we, to misguide the conversation. Right. We shouldn't get into risk strategy because I'm pretty good at it. Like, I'm just saying. I, I just wouldn't saying. be opposed to a game tonight. Right. No, tonight. I'm up for it. Until we end. Yes. yes. Like a good, like, you know, a good six hour game. Um, so, so. I'm terrible at risk. I always want everyone to win. Such a nine. <laughs> so that day, going back to uh, 1968, which amazingly was a, exactly a year after Dr. King gave one of the most profound sermons, a sermon of peace, where he talked about the interrelated structure of all reality. December 24th, 1967, he gave that sermon. Exactly one year later, with King no longer here, those three astronauts took that picture. And they, I mean, more importantly, they saw it themselves. Lovell, Borman, Anders, they looked out the window. They were the first human beings. You know, if you could imagine some kind of body sat for angel, whatever, looking at the planet from a deep time perspective, they're looking at life evolve, right? Lava. Right, lava evolves, starts to sing opera. They're like, wow, hmm. this is cool. That's from... Brian Swim, a mentor of mine, you know, he's an evolutionary cosmologist. He says, lava becomes opera, which mm. I think I love that. Yeah. So they're looking at this lava becoming opera and they're like, wow, that's cool. And then they see this little blip, something leaves because there's all this stuff leaving and going around and then something leaves and goes mm. all the way to the moon. Wow. And it's not just the first human beings. It's the first to our knowledge. It's the first part of earth, part of life. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. And if you think of human beings as being embedded within this living dynamic biosphere, what's our function? You know, we're of the planet or on it. Yeah. That was the realization I had at 15 that gave me my peak experience. I just realized, wow, we haven't been made over here and the planet made over here and then yeah. just dropped in. And then, no, we've actually grown. You know, we're a, a self-reflective aspect of the biosphere itself. It's like Alan Watts talks about right. the... the Planet the planet is a peopling planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a, like a yeah. tree makes apple apples. So in a weird sort of way, that astronaut, that Jim Lovell, is a, in a weird sort of way, is the is the from one perspective, is the biosphere, the planet itself, looking back at itself, yeah. yes. right? And for me, that was a really big moment. That's what happened at fifteen. I was like, whoa, I'm the Gaia. Yeah, it's not the Gaia. This theory of James Lovelock, I don't know if you guys talk about it on the show, but you know, this idea of uh, the planet being like a meta organism that we are, you know, the, the planet has this kind of like homeostatic, homeostasis where it regulates life and the conditions for life itself. And that we've always been thought of, you know, the environment or the planet is there, humanity's here. But suddenly that boundary going and realizing that's non human nature. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm an aspect. 
of that same evolutionary life continuum, but just in this kind of bipedal, self-reflective form. And so what happened on that day, right, a year after King's sermon, on Christmas Eve, when they look out the window, they take that picture, that two-dimensional board game suddenly changes. And it becomes this fragile oasis. That's one of, that's Ron J. Garin, our partner. That's his term for it. And what happens suddenly is we move into a new period of time where our civilization suddenly is completely and utterly out of sync with that reality. Yeah. And those of us that, there was people before that of course realized this, but we now have an image. Suddenly we're like, whoa, we are totally out of sync. And, and 2018, right, next year, Christmas Eve next year is the 50th anniversary. Whoa. So what we're doing is bringing together a bunch of international astronauts to talk about that and to imagine what is the next 50 years like. Because we need a new Earthrise, but this is the crazy and trippy part. We don't need to look at Earthrise 1968. We don't even need to look at Earthrise... I feel like my voice should get deeper. <laughs> Twi- we don't even need to look at Earthrise 2018. <laughs> An American. We need, American. Of course. We need to look at Earthrise 2068. <laughs> so what I mean by that is that what we, <laughs> what we need to do is we need to look at Earthrise again. But this time, instead of looking 50 years backwards, we yeah. need to look 50 years forward. Yeah. And, and what we need is we need a visionary future. We need a visionary future that inspired King, that inspired President Kennedy. Yeah. And that visionary future of 2068, that's what we need. And the great thing about it is that Astro underscore Ron, <laughs> Ronald J. Garren from Yonkers, New York, who went to space twice. Spent six months. Once on STS-128 two weeks with the space shuttle. It was a nice, easy ride. Landed very lovely. The next mission, 2011, Expedition 28, he went with the Russians, and they uh, went on the Soyuz, which Ooh. is like three dudes getting into the back of a VW Beetle and plummeting through the atmosphere and <laughs> smashing into the <laughs> Kazakhstan rocks. So With rocket brakes. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you don't crash right, right before work. you land. There's right. just please a work. rocket explosion. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron and I and Jacob and a number of other people, we're putting together this, this group called Constellation, which is this group of international astronauts. But we're also, and Ron's putting on this, they call it a MOOC, Massive Online Course, something or other. And it's called Earthrise 2068. And he wants to crowdsource a vision of that future. Because instead of being saturated by the dystopias of our science fiction, right, I feel like Blade Runner came out, was very successful, and everyone was like, let's do that. Let's, let's keep doing that. And the Star Trek vision, completely lost. Mm. So we need to bring back the Star Trek vision, right? Mm. Damn right. I'm a big, big Trekkie, by the way. Me too. Okay, there we go. I knew it. I, <laughs> you know what? I knew it. And I mean that in the nicest possible way, because people, there's people that like Star Trek, and there's people that don't like Star Trek. And I was like, that guy. I've got the technical manual. Do you survive, like, man? I've got the yeah. blueprints. Nice. NC1701, bro. <laughs> the D? All Let me just way. ask you. Let me just ask Is it Enterprise? Which Enterprise is it? Which one for the you? The D. 
yeah, gotta be the D. Gotta be the, people go with the E. Nonsense. The E. That no. That's like I lived on the D. You know what I mean? I feel like I, yes. after watching TNG, I feel like <laughs> yeah. I lived on the D. You could, on the D. You could <laughs> let me loose right now yes. in a scale replica of the Enterprise D, and I could navigate. I could go anywhere in the ship. I got a new hero right now. Have you seen uh, the new Bridge Crew game coming to VR? Dude, we were on it. At the Future of Storytelling, we did it. And I look round. No, dude, it's so cool. I look round, and my mate, Mike, had ceased to become Mike, and he was a black Vulcan woman in a red outfit doing the phases yes and i just went i was like this is the greatest day of my life so <laughs> you've got to do it dude it's coming out oh, for playstation oh my I gosh we wait. should do it together I'm i want to see your face actually in yeah this is what could be called a nerdgasm <laughs> <laughs> what just happened right there oh dear <laughs> but it, just one last point on Star Trek. So many. One, we we also released a film called Planetary, um, which had two astronauts. It's kind of an eco philosophy film, which we released at South by, and and we start with two different astronauts. One of them's Ron. The other is Mae Jemsen. She's one of the first African American women to go to space. She is also the only person on Star Trek to have actually gone to space. Oh. She played a transport chief on like I think it's like season two or season three and she like just called them up and was like can I be on Star Trek I'm an astronaut and they were like yep so the first question when I when I sat down with her to interview her she's a she's an incredible she's like one of these remarkable women she was like I was like was going to space difficult she's like no going to Sierra Leone after the UN left and doing triage was difficult and I was like oh right you're one of those like remarkable body sat for angel humans so anyway the interesting thing about it was i i said to her i was like what was it like being on the enterprise (laughs) (laughs) not the space shuttle (laughs) so we had a laugh we had a laugh anyway sorry 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 i feel like the nerdgasm has happened now we can relax We've been evolving from the beginning of civilization to a larger and larger perspective of life on the Earth. But the next natural evolution is understanding the life in space. That is, the fact that the Earth, as Buckminster Fuller used to famously say, is a spaceship, spaceship Earth. We are in space already. It's just that we haven't brought that into our perspective as we live here on Earth. The overview effect is simply the sudden recognition that we live on a planet and all the implications that it brings to life on Earth. I've got an idea for you guys. Yeah. I don't know if you're still talking to any Republican congressman, but I've got a really, I think I've got a good idea about it. The Earth deficit. You know they're obsessed with the deficit? Yeah. Like that's the thing that like gets them out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. The, the real deficit is the earth deficit. Yeah. 
Because the interesting thing about that, the, the, the whole basis of our economy is based upon resources, which are ever renewed by the biosphere. And as soon as you actually go into an earth deficit where those resources don't renew, then you're talking about a real deficit. Then it gets really scary. And the interesting thing about it is when the astronauts go to space and they look out the window, and we call this thing the flip, they see an iridescent biosphere, which is, that's a direct quote, right? A living planet. Yeah. Then they're like, oh, there's a species that's part of that planet and embedded within that, us, right? And in turn, we've created a society and an economy. So it's planet, people, economy. And the really trippy thing is that we think it's exactly the opposite, yeah. <laughs> right? We think yeah. that the primary system is the global economy, right? That's the primary system. And then, and then humanity, and then, you know, we've got to take care of the environment as well. Like, a, like, taking care, like cleaning up your room. Right, or something. exactly. Yeah. But the reality is it's literally the opposite. Yeah. And we need this kind of flip. And once you see it like that, you're like, yeah, it's so obvious. Of course, they don't see the global economy. And of course, we're like this, you know, we're a species that's very intelligent and we created this, you know, amazing global economy. But it's kind of like a Frankenstein's monster. We've forgotten what it actually is. It's a construct by us, right? And we are in turn part of the planet, you know, kind of in some ways, it's kind of manifestation of the planet. And it's kind of, it gets really trippy because then you're like, well, wait a minute, because I, I studied sustainable development and I spent my whole master's program trying to figure out how I could explain sustainable development. And that's how I, <laughs> that's what I came up with. I was like, you look out the window, you're an astronaut, yeah. it's boom, boom, boom. And then you flip it and it's like, yeah, we're in this monumental moment where as soon as we start realizing that, it's like, whoa. When we look down at the earth from space, you know, we see this amazing, indescribably beautiful planet. It looks like a living, breathing organism, but it also, at the same time, looks extremely fragile. Because you go outside on a clear day and it's the big blue sky, and it's like it goes on forever, right? And, and how could we possibly, you know, put enough stuff into it to fill it up with things that really change it? And yet, you see it from space and it's this thin line which is just barely hugging the surface of the planet. Anybody else who's ever gone to space says the same thing because it really is striking and it's really sobering to see this paper-thin layer and to realize that that little paper-thin layer is all that protects every living thing on Earth from, from death, basically, um, from the harshness of space. So today I am so honored to talk with uh, a person who I met, I guess, last year and immediately became one of my heroes because she is a woman working in the traditionally male-dominated world of the sciences. And she is specifically working in climate science, but also has a knowledge of and a background in astrophysics and is a person of faith. So... Catherine Hayhoe is here with us talking about climate change today, and I just couldn't be more excited. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Let's let's start with just the really obvious stuff. You know, since you're 
an actual climate scientist with an actual doctorate. I, I just thought maybe we could start with some of the basics here for people who aren't sure where they are in understanding how our climate is changing or what role humanity is playing in that process. How do we know that the climate is changing at all? I mean, is there really a scientific consensus? There is. And this is one of the first questions that my husband and I first started talking about. And when we first got married, we just didn't realize that we were not on the same page here because he came from a very traditional Christian home, grew up going to a traditional Christian school. And he had always heard from people he trusted that this wasn't a real issue. It was just being made up by those liberals um, as part of the (laughs) United Nations plan for world domination with the Antichrist pulling the strings behind the scenes. So how do we know this thing is real? Well, global temperature records from tens of thousands of weather stations around the whole world are what we use to measure global temperature. And when we look at these records that go back, the oldest records actually go back to the 1600s, we see that temperature goes up and down from year to year. That's normal. That's weather. But over climate timescales of at least 20 to 30 years, we see a long-term increase. Now, people would say, well, but those are thermometers. I mean, and, you know, I don't really trust thermometers. Well, then all we have to do today is look in our own backyards. Because if we look around the entire world today, we look at when trees are budding, when flowers are coming out, what types of insects and birds and animals we have in our backyards, how long the growing season is. When we look in our own backyards, All around the entire world, there's over 26 and a half thousand different independent lines of evidence in God's creation telling us that, yes, the planet is getting warmer. If the climate is warming and if we see all of these signals that it is, why does it seem that winters seem to be getting colder with more severe blizzards if a warming pattern is the norm? That's a great question. Long term, winters are warming. In fact, for many areas like the U.S. Northeast, as well as where I live here in Texas, winters are warming fastest of any other season. But winter weather is also getting more variable. Climate change exacerbates the weather risks that we already face in the places where we live. And in many cases, it's kind of amping up our natural weather patterns. And so we're seeing much more crazy wild swings from hot to cold and wet to dry. And in places where it's cold enough to snow in the winter, as it is across much of the United States, in some of those places, we're even seeing more snow because in a warmer world, water evaporates faster out of oceans and lakes and rivers. And so when a normal storm comes along, as it always does, there's more water vapor sitting up there in the atmosphere for the storm to pick up and dump on us. And if it's above freezing, it falls as rain. If it's below freezing, it actually falls as snow. That's that's one of the reasons why our, our PBS series, we have this little PBS series called Global Weirding. We called it Global Weirding because that's one of the things that most of us notice when we have lived in a place for a certain amount of time or whether we go home to where we used to live, we say, Something's weird. It is just not the same as it used to be. And that's what we're seeing all around us is this type of global weirding thing. I've actually noticed that when I talk to people who maybe um, because of their political orientation would say they don't believe in climate change and certainly don't believe in man-made climate change. It's interesting how many in the same breath, if you talk about the local weather patterns, 
And say, say for example, it's a farmer who's been working in, in farms and agriculture for 20 or 30 years, and they will tell you that the last eight to 10 years have been incredibly bizarre compared to what they learned throughout the rest of their life, that there is definitely this weird phenomenon. Why do you think there's that disconnect between like accepting weather has been weird lately and we have a trend towards climate change over time? I see the same thing. I mean, I was just waiting to pick up my son from Sunday school the other day and this other parent came up to me at church and he said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, do you think the weather is getting weirder here in Texas? And I said, well, yes, it actually is. I've looked at the data and it is getting more extreme. And he said, I knew it. He said, I've lived here for 30 years and I knew it's getting weirder. So we've gotten to the point where you're right. We can't deny the evidence of our own eyes often, although some of us still can. But then making the connection between something is changing and humans are responsible is where the barrier exists, not because we really have a problem with the science connecting the fact that when we burn coal and oil and gas, it produces carbon dioxide, which is a heat trapping gas, and that heat trapping gas is building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around our planet, and that's why our planet's temperature is warming. I mean, the physics that we use to figure out how much our planet is warming is the same physics we use in designing airplanes and in using our fridges and stoves every day. So we don't really have a problem with the science. I mean, if we did, we'd have to throw out our fridges and our stoves and our iPhones and probably even our cars. But what we have a problem with is the fact that we've been told that if it is humans who are responsible for this warming, then the only solution is to drink the Al Gore Kool-Aid, to join the global warming cult, to destroy the economy, and to let the government run our lives. We have been told that those are the only solutions. And most people would rather cut off their arm than agree with those solutions. How, how do we know that human activity is driving climate change? And to what extent is human activity driving climate change? I mean, couldn't it be the sun? Couldn't it be natural fluctuations? We know that in the age of the dinosaurs, there was no ice on the earth. We know that the earth has been a snowball at different points in its history. So isn't it normal for the climate to change dramatically over time? It is normal for climate to change, but it's not normal for it to change this fast. If you look back as far as we have in what we call natural thermometer records or paleoclimate records, which include tree rings and pollen records and ocean sediments, and even stalactites and stagmalites in caves contain records of past climate. When we look as far as we can back, we have never seen a change happening at the speed that it's happening today. So the speed is very unusual. That's warning sign number one. And then warning sign number two is when we look at all the natural causes of climate change, and that's actually what climate scientists do. Many people are surprised to learn that climate scientists study natural variability and natural cycles. That's who does it. And in fact, I, I would like to find this out, but I would kind of guess, just based on what I and my colleagues do, that we probably spend more of our time studying natural reasons why climate changes than human reasons, because natural reasons are much more interesting and much more complicated. But the reality is, is that when we look at the sun, we see that the sun's energy has actually been going down 
over the last 40 to 50 years, not up. So according to the sun, we should be cooling right now, not warming. When we look at natural cycles like El Nino that op operate within the Earth's climate system, those natural cycles just move heat around. They don't create it or destroy it. And so the whole, when we look at the planet, we see that the oceans are warming, the atmosphere is warming, the land surface is warming. The whole planet is warming. It can't be a natural cycle just moving heat around. And then people mm. say, well, what about volcanoes? Volcanoes produce carbon dioxide, don't they? They do, but they only produce 1% of what humans do. And then the last main factor that's caused climate to change in the past are the cycles in the Earth's orbit that bring the ice ages and the warm periods like we're in today. So a last natural question would be, aren't we just warming after the last ice age? But when we look at the natural thermometer data, we see actually that warming after the last ice age peaked about six to 8,000 years ago. And since then, our Earth's temperature was on a very, very gradual, but long, slow, and consistent slide down. Because according to orbital cycles, the next thing on our geologic calendar was another ice age. Until we hit the Industrial Revolution, and all of a sudden, temperature just went straight back up. So we look at all these natural factors, they have an alibi. There's not a single natural factor anybody can point to that could create a change big enough to what we see happening right now. And in addition, they'd have to explain how carbon dioxide, the heat trapping properties of which have been known since the 1850s, how carbon dioxide is not actually trapping heat. Nobody's been able to explain that either. Hmm. Here are some more unpleasant climate change numbers. Since 1914, 99% of the rhinos are gone. 97% of tigers, gone since 1914. 90% of lions, since 1993, gone. 90% of sea turtles, gone since 1980. 90% of monarch butterflies, gone since 1995. 90% of big ocean fish, gone since 1950. Over half of the Great Barrier Reef, gone since 1985. If the ocean plankton keeps declining at a rate of 1% per year, that means 50% of it will be gone in 70 years. And at the current rate of things, more than 1% is likely. Our crop and pasture lands caused 80% of all land vertebrate species extinctions. 50% of land vertebrate species died off in the last 50 years. If we don't change things, another 50% of the land vertebrates on Earth will be set to die in the next 40 years. If that goes above 50%, that's unstoppable, irreversible mass extinction. Catherine, what kind of effects do we think that climate change are going to have on humanity? How extreme is, is this problem for humanity? The biggest problems we have, in fact, perhaps the biggest problem I think we have when we talk about climate change is not whether we think it's real or not, because the vast majority of people across the entire United States do recognize that climate is changing. And there's this awesome set of maps at the Yale Program for Climate Communication. If you Google the Yale Climate Opinion Maps, you can see these maps by congressional district, by county across the U.S., and by riding and province across Canada. So the majority of us agree something's different, but
But when we start to ask people, do you think it's going to affect the polar bears? Most people would say yes. Do you think it's going to affect future generations? Many people would say yes. Do you think it's going to affect me? Most of us, the vast majority of us say no. We think it's this issue that's only really about the polar bears. But the reality is, is that we care about a changing climate because it exacerbates the risks we already face today in the places where we live. If we live in a place that is prone to heavy rainfalls and flooding, guess what? Climate change is exacerbating that pattern because the warmer the world, the faster evaporation happens, the more water vapor is available for those storms to pick up and dump. If we live in a part of the world that's prone to drought, those are also being exacerbated by a changing climate. Why? Because it's warmer, water evaporates faster out of our soils, but there's this high pressure system camped out over us, keeping that drought alive, and it doesn't let any storms come through to pick up and dump the water back on us. If we're at risk from hurricanes, hurricanes are getting stronger because they feed off warm ocean water. If we're at risk of heat waves, heat waves are getting more frequent, although thankfully, cold snaps are getting less frequent. But heat waves are particularly dangerous because they affect people in developing countries who don't have air conditioning, who don't have ways to adapt. We care about a changing climate because it takes whatever risks we face, whether it's water shortages, um, crop yields and famine, disease, it takes the risks we already face and it exacerbates them. And it's gotten to the point now where we can't fix huge global issues like poverty and hunger and diseases that nobody should be dying from in 2017 if we leave climate change out of the picture because climate change is exacerbating those issues all around the world. Mm. If there's so much consensus among scientists about this issue, how is it that so many people still are, that there's a conversation still happening about it? I mean, when I tweet about it, I still get people that are like, you know, this is not a complete scientific consensus on it. So is there a complete scientific consensus? And if so, why is the American public so divided on this issue on climate change? If you ask scientists who actually study this issue, do you agree not just that climate is changing and not just that humans are responsible, but that humans are the main reason why climate is changing? And in fact, the reality is, is that humans are responsible for all of the observed warming and then some, because according to natural factors, we should be cooling right now, not warming. If you ask scientists that, over 97% of scientists agree. And if you look at the scientific literature, which is tens of thousands of independent studies dating back to the 1850s, you see that there's over 99.9% agreement, I think, on this. So why is there such a debate? And why, when you ask people, do scientists agree? People say, no, I don't think scientists agree. Because every time you turn on a TV, whether it's CNN or Fox News or any other channel, what do you see? You see Bill Nye, who has an undergraduate degree in engineering, but he's not a scientist. You have Bill Nye debating somebody else who isn't a scientist either. And one's saying climate change is real, the other's saying it isn't. And you're like, oh, well, who should I believe? Let's just wait till they work it out. Part, <laughs> part, part of the problem is, you know, w w it's interesting for us to see people arguing, but unfortunately they're arguing over something that doesn't have a basis for argument. But the second reason why we have so many doubts about this issue is because those doubts are being deliberately sown. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are organizations, and I know these organizations because they have actually attacked me personally, that are channeling money from fossil fuel industry, from the Koch brothers, channeling money into these think tanks to actually deliberately spread false information. There are websites that publish reports all the time that are deliberately intended to mislead people. And as a Christian, 
that is what angers me the most. I mean, I'm all for disagreeing about stuff. I'm all for hashing out dissenting opinions. That's what makes the conversation interesting. But I'm not about perverting the truth of what God's creation is telling us for financial gain. And I'm certainly not about deceiving Christians, which these people are deliberately doing. They're not Christians, but they are feeding talking points and messages to people we trust and respect that we get our information from in order to deliberately mislead us on this issue. And there's actually a great book and a movie about this called Merchants of Doubt, if anybody wants to know more about that. It talks about how some of the very same lobbyists who used to work for the tobacco industry, when the tobacco industry lost its battle against having to say that, you know, tobacco causes cancer, many of those same lobbyists moved right over to the think tanks that are aimed at sowing doubt and discord on the issue that climate is changing, it is humans, it is serious, and we need to do something about it. That's so dark. <laughs> I was so about dark. to say. Yeah, I'm sorry. How I do those people dark. sleep? <laughs> I know. No, not you. I, yes, mean, the, the, I, I, I don't know. Oh. I mean, I just shake my head sometimes. Like, talk about evil. If if you actually literally know that what you're saying is not true, but you just do it anyways because you can make a pretty dollar doing so. It's so funny because one of the biggest accusations I get and my colleagues get all the time is you're just in it for the money. And they don't realize that, you know what, I could be having a career in astrophysics making the same amount that I do today. And if you look at who's making the money, do you think fossil fuel companies make more money? Or do you think professors at universities make more money? I mean, it's just like, (laughs) where on earth does this idea come from? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that's real dark. I was just imagining like a guy, he goes home at night, he kisses his kids, mm-hmm. they keep going up, he worked for the tobacco industry, suppressed evidence <laughs> about lung cancer, it finally imploded. He's like, I gotta find work. Maybe I'll convince people that one of the largest existential threats to the species isn't really happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's that's, just... that's exactly it. And I'm glad you said that because, again, why do we care about climate change? We care about it because... We have seven and a half billion people on the planet almost. You know, back a thousand years ago, if sea level rose three feet or even six feet, and if you lived in New Orleans or Shanghai or New York, you know, you just pick up your tent and move, no big deal. But we have two thirds of the world's biggest cities within a few feet of sea level now, and we can't pick them up and move them. We can't just say, oh, well, I don't have any water here now, so I'm just gonna pick up my tents and move to someplace that does have water. Well, guess what? Somebody else already owns that water. That's why we care about climate change, because it poses, as you said, an existential threat to human society as we know it. Mm. You may have noticed that unlike most podcasts, the Liturgist podcast never really advertises. Um, Actually, to my knowledge, we've never had a paid ad from anybody before. And the reason that's the case is because we really value this space. We've always wanted this space to be a safe space for people to let their guard down and engage their heart and sometimes throwing a toothpaste ad in the middle of it just doesn't feel right. That said, we have a team that works on this show and it takes a lot of time energy and resources to make a show like this far too much time to just have everybody volunteer so we've got expenses uh we're a corporation now (laughs) we have recording equipment and 
travel expenses and all sorts of things. And the way that we came up with figuring out how to pay for this was, first of all, to ask you for help. And we started this thing on Patreon where you could support us for any amount per month that you would like, and that was very helpful. And then we eventually figured out that Patreon has an app, and we have this ability to deliver content to those of you who subscribe and give to this program and to the work that we do with the liturgists. And we're like, that is a great way to make more work <laughs> for what we're trying to do as the liturgists, spiritually thoughtful, evocative, and open work. So we started making these meditations, and we have music, and we have bonus content to the episodes. We also have a bonus podcast that we do on the off weeks of the show. Had a really great one recently with William Matthews. And we converse on the app and on the comment section. And there's this whole little community of patrons. Um, we actually did a float church, we called it, in Los Angeles recently for the patrons, where we all went to this float place. We're going to have little get-togethers and little things for the patrons extra. Anyway, we're just letting you know about this because it is purely the patrons that are making this thing happen. And a lot of you listen to the show, and you're welcome to just listen for free. That's great. But if you're a person that has been influenced by the work of the liturgists, the podcast, the liturgies, everything that we're doing, and you'd like to see this work continue, anything helps. You can get access to most of the stuff, including the bonus podcast, for just a buck. That just kind of gets you in the system. And, of course, the people that give more, incredibly valuable um, to us and what we're doing. And... And the more patrons we get, the more work we can do. We have all sorts of dreams about what we want to turn this thing into. And if you would like to see this sort of spirituality, this sort of conversation that exists in this space continue and grow, we would invite you to go to theliturgists.com and just look for that donate or join us button in the top corner of the page. And uh, we would love to have you part of the liturgists patron family all right much love everybody let's get back to the conversation with guy and jacob and to start us out here's another clip from guy's short film overview which you can watch on vimeo for free by the way if you're interested this view of the earth from space the whole earth uh, perspective i think is the true symbol of this age and I believe that what's going to happen is there's going to be a greater and greater interest in, in communicating this idea because after all, it's key to our survival. We have to start acting as one species with one destiny. We are not going to survive if we don't do that. We're seeing very clearly that if the earth becomes sick, then we become sick. If the earth dies, then we're going to die. People sense that something's wrong, but they're still struggling to go back and find out what the real roots of the problem are. And I think what we need to come to is the realization that it's not just fixing an economic or political system, but it's a basic worldview. Yeah, that vision and see, like when you see the, the biosphere as we're Earth looking at Earth, that's when things like climate change, it is calling it like a partisan issue is so ridiculous. It'd be as, as silly as thinking about trying to make your leg healthier without worrying about 
exercising or your diet or like thinking that it's disconnected. I'm not so concerned about like my, my heart, my lungs, really my leg. I need my leg. It's my right be, leg. My right leg. I need that to be healthy. Like, well, then take care of your body. You want jobs. You want America to thrive and be a good, like, take care of the world in which America is a part. Can you, you can't make people see it though. And that's also so frustrating. Can you lead them to see it? You can invite them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's people listening right now who've had the flip listening to us have the flip on this program and i don't think you can force anyone but i think you can just continue to invite people to see the world more as it is yeah. there's this idea with the overview effect that it can take you to a beautiful place or kind of a dark place you look at the earth and it looks so fragile you realize like we're one good sized meteor away from the void as a species and the the earth instead of seeing seeming vast seems fragile and delicate and small i mean i saw this week another image came back from cassini showing the earth from the perspective of saturn you've got this, the rings of saturn and this little blue dot and it's so beautiful and so tiny i have a a key i wear around my neck that jacob gave me that says orbital perspective when we have these moments, when we have these flips, when we see our true perspective in the world, whether it takes you to a light place or a dark place at first, it should ultimately take you to a place of perspective where in every moment, in every decision, in everything you buy or consume or recommend or every action you take, you can for a moment in your mind, look out that spacecraft window at this little blue marble and maintain that kind of a perspective. And for in, if I have any goal, I'm not trying to lead people to a certain place with God, God forbid. I'm not trying to lead people towards a particular ideology. But if there's one thing I hope people get from engaging this work is the understanding of and importance of taking an orbital perspective to the human experience. And I think it should be all of our mission is to, like, find a way to integrate that with everything. Absolutely everything. And uh, we're going to hit up against some, some realities pretty soon where it's going to become dramatically apparent that we need to reorganize ourselves as a species. And what's interesting is a context for that reorganization is exactly that perspective. We've done events all over the place to really different demographics and everyone loves astronauts. Like it's kind of trippy. I mean, no one's ever been like astronauts. <laughs> no way, mate. <laughs> not, they're not coming in here. <laughs> Never I, happened. I saw this week, 45 was like super thrilled and proud to be in the presence of astronauts and like pretty genuinely humbled. Wow. Cause yeah. they've been to space. We did an event down at Kansas City, Missouri, Ron and I, a couple of years ago, and we were kind of really apprehensive about it because it was a crowd that was, you know, socially conservative, Republican, cl climate change deniers mostly. You know, it was a very different event from we'd normally sing into the choir kind of thing. And so we were like, oh man, it's going like, to be a bit weird doing it, you know, because we have this like live documentary and we go up and we kind of narrate it. So anyway, we did this event. I speak five minutes about images as a filmmaker. Ron speaks about what his first experience. I talk about some more images. He talks about his second experience. It's kind of simple. But we talk about climate change without ever saying it. 
We talk about social equity without ever saying it. We talk about all of these green social democratic ideas without ever being explicit about it. You know, we Trojan horse it through the experience. And, and Ron's a golden country and apple pie and F-16. And we've got a standing ovation. Mm. And at the end, like the mayor comes out, gives us his medal. We're like thinking, oh, did anyone, did they really, did they listen? But <laughs> yeah. we talked about the, we talked about, instead of talking about climate change, we talked about the fragility, the atmosphere. Yeah. From the big blue sky, right? The sun's in a blue sky, big blue sky. Let's, well, let's do whatever we want. And then you go into space and it's like, and every astronaut says this, it freaks everyone out how thin the atmosphere yeah. is. And in the audience, when you show that, everyone goes, because oh, it's tiny. And you think it's this other thing. And then you're like, no, it's that bit. And you're like, oh, and you can hear the gasp. I read that ratio wise, it's like a globe and the, the gloss on a globe, basically. Right. Yeah. And then you see the sun in a black sky. Suddenly it's not the sun anymore. Suddenly it's our local star. And then suddenly we're in a solar system and then suddenly we're in a galaxy. So there's this immediate cosmological shift and there's a higher center and then another higher center. And suddenly it's like, whoa, <laughs> it's like this kind of shift. And what was interesting is after the event, all of these people came up to us and they were like, can I do my, can I do my Kansas City impression? I'm, I'm going to apologize. I've just got generic Southern. So it's not. You won't offend me, brother. I couldn't, Are you I sure? couldn't be more excited about they it. They came up to us and they were like, Jay Wiz, that was one of the greatest things I ever did here. <laughs> I did. You, you gave yourself away on I did, but other than that, okay, it was pretty good. Okay, thanks. But, um, <laughs> that was a little Bill Clinton. No, yeah, it was a bit Bill Clinton, wasn't it? That was a bit Bill Clinton. But no, but it was crazy. Like all of these people were coming up and they were like, and it was like uh, this, this light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, man, we can, we can speak to everyone. And let's get an Iranian astronaut and a Japanese astronaut and a Russian astronaut. And let's get Muslim and Jewish and Christian and humanist astronauts together and point to this common reality at the UN on the 50th anniversary of Earthrise. And let's see what happens. The one other thing that I guess kind of ties all of this together from our perspective or the work that we're doing comes back to, I think, you guy as a 15-year-old reading a book and encountering somebody sharing an idea in a way that went into your head and went into your heart and then became a part of your life. And that's what's really stood out to me is at some point, what humans do with each other is we, we share life through stories, through culture, through music, over food. There's a, an exchange that happens and the most powerful exchanges are the ones that produce or awaken a new kind of empathy and a recognition of our common humanity in someone else. And the most powerful vehicle for that empathetic exchange that I've found is, is through music and through stories. And we've all been inundated with these images of you know, the worst possible outcomes and there's such a hopelessness around a lot of the conversations with climate. And it doesn't have to end that way. I think that's the message that inspires us and gets us out of bed every day. It doesn't have to end there. Like there's actually another way that we can live and be together in this planet. And in order to even spark that idea in a 15 year old guy, he had to encounter someone expressing that. 
And so part of the power, I think, and in, in why we're dedicating so much time and energy into this is because the astronauts are amazing storytellers and they have experienced something with their body that has affected the way that they see the world and interact in the world. Like we're not stuck in this version of reality. Like we can change it. You can change it. But in order to even begin to know how to do that, it helps to have the imagination sparked and to have something to aim for. And right now, I'm at a loss for, for anyone presenting like this really you know, beautiful, imagined version of what our reality would be like. And I think part of why the astronauts are so effective is because they aren't asking you to change your religion or your political orientation, your national identity. All those things are, are part of you, who you are, but they don't have to be the foundation or the starting point. Like You are a human being. We're all going to come from different cultures and different stories and different families. But if you can look at someone who looks nothing like you and whose experience on the planet has been very different from yours and start with the fact that you're both human beings, that your primary identity is human, and that all of these other things, your secondary and tertiary identities, they're part of who you are. The astronaut story isn't asking you to change anything about that aspect of your identity. All it's asking you to do is just like examine yourself and the world and your neighbor from a slightly different vantage point, which is frankly the truth of what they've experienced looking down at all of us riding through space together on a living rock and pretending like we're not in it together. If we can have some kind of moment through narrative, through a conversation, where that's, that, that version of reality becomes clear to us and becomes present in our lives, and it helps us reorient how we navigate on a daily basis. And all those petty differences, like, fade away. It's not as important. Like, we have a chance to build a version of the world and of how we live in the world that is just different, and it's better than the way that things are. I don't know how to do it personally, but I know that if we're in it together, if we're having these types of conversations where we're imagining a better way forward and we're sharing our stories and sharing our dreams and sharing our ambitions, that's the first step towards realizing a better future. Part of that growth and that better future, it, it calls me back to that story that he told at the beginning of moving towards the moon. Like humans are focused on out there. We got this task ahead of us. We're always doing that. We're always just like got the things, got our things to do, and we're trying to get our lives better, and we're moving forward into something. And the growth and the change happens when you just pause for a moment and take a look out the window. And whoa, what am I? where are we and what are we doing and you like take a moment to consider and look from a different vantage point at home and at your heart and at your essence and yourself and in that moment it, it really can it can change everything so just taking a moment to ground yourself in a little deeper story and broader perspective and from there all the all the stuff falls in it again that's when that's when it's not a political partisan issue climate change or how the wording doesn't but like you're just being 
what you are. Your natural instinct is somebody throws a ball at your head to move your head. You know, it's like you're natural. You don't have to think about it. Should I keep my head intact? When you can see, oh, this earth, it's not only my home, it's the soil. I am the tree coming out of this soil. I am, this is me. This is when you can feel that, then all the policies and the advocacy and the decisions you make, need to make in your personal life, they all fall into place from an understanding that's, that's more at your heart than just falling into some sort of, I'm going to become more liberal and fall on this issue or this policy. Uh, all that stuff comes more naturally when you can take a moment and look and feel and experience what you really are and how connected to this earth you really are. Amen. Amen. What about that? Is that better? Amen. Amen. That's lovely. That's good. Thanks so much, Jacob Marshall and Lord Guy Charles Barrington Reed for being on the show. If you want to follow their work on social media, you can find Jacob at Art. I am art. All of those words just spelled out. And then Guy is at We Are Planetary. Talking about global climate change can be really scary to the point that it's easy to feel overwhelmed and disempowered. I mean, it sounds like the world is going to end, right? It can create a temptation toward fatalism and even an urge to grab a bucket of popcorn and just watch the world burn. And I think even worse is when our convictions about the urgency of our situations keep us from having productive conversations with people who don't believe that climate change is really happening or that human activity is causing it. And this may be the most dangerous part of climate change. It's a cycle that includes behaviors driven by social cues, social identity, and the ways that human beings interact with each other. There's an overwhelming scientific consensus that climate change is happening and that human activity is a significant factor behind it. But there's not actually a consensus on how severe climate change will ultimately be and how quickly it will happen. In other words, there is no scientific consensus that it's too late, or that we're in an irreversible mass extinction event. In fact, there's some good news. Carbon emissions in the United States have declined in recent years, telling us that human actions really can mitigate human-driven climate change. If you take anything from this podcast, take this. It's not too late. It's not too late to act. It's not too late to protect this pale blue dot. But it is time to act. Climate change is already impacting the most poor and vulnerable in our global society. Climate change is already driving famine, the spread of disease, and water availability for people who believe in a Christ-centered life. I believe it is a core, missional, theological imperative to do something about climate to protect the poor and the vulnerable. So, Catherine, 
How does your faith come into play there? I think I've heard, I've heard a lot of Christians that somehow the faith that they have seems like to justify ignoring it rather than pushing them into it, which doesn't make any sense to me. I guess it's that escapist sort of theology, like, a, you know, we're here temporarily. This world's not our home. This, is, this doesn't have to concern us too much. But it sounds like you're a person of faith and that you keep talking about God's creation and such. How, how does your faith actually influence not only your understanding of climate change, but your engagement with it and how we ought to respond to it? It's the reason I do what I do. I was, you know, well along the way in pursuing astrophysics with, you know, intending to go to grad school and eventually become a researcher. But I grew up as a daughter of missionaries in South America. And I, you know, sort of accidentally, probably not accidentally, took a class just before I graduated on climate science, just to, you know, finish out and round out my degree. And I was completely stunned by the fact, not just that this was real, because growing up in Canada, I knew it was real. Every other country in the world, you know, you know you're taught in school, yes, this is real. But I didn't realize it was so big. And I didn't realize that we wouldn't be able to fix these other issues like hunger and poverty and disease and water scarcity if we left climate change out of the picture. And so I was really convicted. I don't think there's any other word for it. I was convicted that I actually have the exact skills you need because physics and even astrophysics is the exact science that goes into the climate models we use to figure out how this thing's going to affect people in the future. I have this exact skill set to study this issue. And so I felt absolutely compelled to do it. My heart just went out realizing that the poor and the vulnerable are those who are most affected by a changing climate. But the reason why many of us put up what I think of as religiously sounding smoke screens you know, God wouldn't let this happen. If God's in control and it gets bad enough, all we have to do is pray. The world's going to end anyway, so why do we care? God gave us dominion over this planet. God promised Noah he would never flood the earth again. We throw up these religiously sounding smoke screens, but that's all they are because 99.9% .9 of the time, our real objections have nothing to do with the science and they don't actually have anything to, to do with the theology either. They're objections to the perceived, and I want to emphasize that word perceived, Solutions, because we've been told by people we trust that the only solutions to global warming are destruction of the economy, total government control, ruinous taxation, and possibly the return of the Antichrist. And no, no, no Christian worth their salt would want that to happen. Um, and so that's why it's so important to talk solutions, because when we try to argue these religiously sounding objections, and I address a lot of these in one of my little videos called, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? Because you know, at the beginning of the Bible, it says we have responsibility or dominion or stewardship over every living thing on this planet. And even if you want to say dominion, well, what would you think of a CEO who had dominion over a company and ran it into the ground? We wouldn't respect that person. And then all through the Bible, we have God's care and love for creation. And then all through the New Testament, we have caring for others, loving for others, especially the least fortunate. And then in Revelation, we have a verse saying God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So the Bible addresses Boom. all these smoke screens very succinctly. But the most important thing to talk about is solutions, because if we recognize that there are solutions that we can agree with without changing who we are, without changing our identity, without changing our ideology, then we're much more likely to accept the reality of the problem. And so that's why I talk so frequently about how there are free market solutions to climate change. There are economic job growing solutions to climate change. 
There are libertarian solutions to climate change. There are solutions across the whole spectrum to this issue. And what we should be arguing is not whether it's real or not, because scientists have known that it's real for over 100 years. That's how long we've known that humans are changing this planet and how much the temperature of the planet's going to warm. We should be arguing over what are the best solutions, because there are solutions at every part of the spectrum. And by Republicans in the United States, especially by conservatives counting themselves out of the solutions conversation, by default, it means the only solutions being suggested, the only viable solutions that are being suggested, will be ones that come more from the liberal side of the spectrum. Yeah. So one last question. Like, what would you say to someone who says, I totally agree, climate change is a problem and it's caused by human activity, but there's nothing I can do as one person? <laughs> we have a video about that too in our Global Work Weirding series. That is such an important question because often we feel overwhelmed by this huge issue. And I've even seen many people just burn out, feel like it's impossible to cope with, nothing's changing, it's just getting worse. I can't do anything. And so we just burn out on this. The reality is, is there's a lot we can do about it. And one of the most important things we can do is probably one we wouldn't think of. And that is talk about it. One of the most important things we can do is talk about climate change. I don't mean arguing the science. And I don't even mean arguing the theology. The most effective way to talk about climate change is to talk solutions. Isn't it amazing that Texas has gotten almost a quarter of its electricity from wind since January? That's incredible. Isn't it amazing that we have mm. two times more jobs in the renewable energy industry across the entire United States than we do in the fossil fuel industry? Isn't it amazing mm. that China is investing $360 billion to create 13 million new jobs in the renewable energy industry in China? Isn't it incredible that people innovators are bringing solar energy to Africa through pay-as-you-go solar panels that they drive around from place to place when there's a billion people who live in energy poverty today. So talking solutions can make such a difference because then we realize, wow, stuff is happening. Changes are happening. And one of the biggest changes happening right here in the United States, believe it or not, is the fact that there is actually a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in Congress. You can't join it unless you have a partner from the other party. So there's 38 members now. It's growing month by month. And 19 of those are Republican, 19 are Democrat. It's the brainchild of Citizens Climate Lobby, which is one of my favorite organizations. I serve as their science advisor because I think they're so effective. They have respectful, mm. hopeful, solutions-oriented conversations with people across the whole political spectrum, and they welcome people of faith to join them. And those are the type of conversations I feel like we need to be having. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you so much for your time today. We'll have links to more resources that Dr. Hayhoe has provided for us in the show notes on the liturgistpodcast.com, as well as more information about the Climate Solutions Caucus and how you can contact your legislative representative. Thank you so much. Great chatting with you. So what can you do? What can you, one person, do to affect a global problem? Well, 29% of carbon emissions in the United States come from generating electricity. Every watt that you don't use in your home is a watt that doesn't have to be generated in a power station. And it's carbon that does not get released into our atmosphere. 
the biggest energy hog in most homes, is the cooling system. So bump up your thermostat a degree or two when you're home. Get used to it, acclimate to a little bit warmer temperature. And when you leave the house, bump it up a lot or turn off the air conditioner altogether. You can replace one light bulb in your house every month with an LED bulb. LED bulbs have come down in price dramatically, and they're way more efficient than incandescent or halogen bulbs. About 10% of your home's energy use probably goes to lighting, and LED lights will cut that usage dramatically. Of course, 27% of U.S. carbon emissions come from transportation, so basic car maintenance makes your car more efficient and saves you money on gas. So check your tire pressure regularly. You'll find a sticker in the frame of your driver's side door with the recommended pressures for your front and rear tires. Also, check, clean, and replace, if necessary, your car's air filter every three to six months. It makes your engine more efficient and also helps you burn less fuel. Anytime you walk, bike, carpool, or take mass transit, you dramatically lower the CO2 emission rate. One person and one car is terribly inefficient, and it makes traffic worse, too. So walk when you can, bike when you can, ride with a friend, take the bus, take the train. Anytime you do that, you're lowering carbon emissions. Of course, agriculture is a major contributor to carbon emissions, and in addition to carbon dioxide, also produces a lot of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. You can eat less meat, especially beef. Cows are one of the major producers of methane gas in our atmosphere. So start by going meat-free for one meal a day, and then maybe do a day a week without meat, maybe two. The point here is not to eliminate meat from your diet. I understand that's very difficult. But reducing your meat consumption makes a big difference, not only for emissions, but also for your health. That's just four things you can do that are easy and inexpensive. Lights, thermostat, car, meat. And it's just the beginning. What you buy and how it gets to you, what you plug in at home, what you throw away and where, there's dozens of things each of us can do to reduce our impact on the climate. And if you feel like, hey, it's just me, what difference will my actions make? There are hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast and that they are going to take action too. It's not too late. And you, yes, you can make a difference. So go to theliturgist.com slash climate action to learn more, more things you can do, more ways you can change, more ways to encourage others to do so. You'll find additional resources for information on climate change. And really importantly, you can also learn how you can influence your elected leaders to take action on climate change. All right, everybody. Well, that's our show. Let's not let it stop at the podcast. Please come see us at one of our live events. This fall, we are doing three liturgist gatherings in Boston, Seattle, and Los Angeles. 
Check those out at theliturgists.com. Also, you can find our other dates from Science Mike and my band, Gunger. My name is Michael Gunger, and this episode has been produced by myself and Greg Nordine. Thanks as well to Corey Pig and Madison Chandler. We'd like to thank all of our guests for being part of this, as well as the patrons for making what we do here at The Liturgists possible. The music on today's show was by Gunger, Paper Chaser, and On Earth. Science Mike and I have been your hosts. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thank you.